0: Welcome to the bridge builder program an initiative of the minnesota catholic conference where we help you live your faith in the public arena i'm jason adkins executive director of the minnesota catholic conference and joining me remotely today is our producer and minnesota catholic conference communications manager kit cross hey kit
1: hey good morning everyone i hope that everyone's having a really blessed day we've got a really great show ahead
0: you can catch us right here each week on your favorite catholic radio station but if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes. Just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast, or find the Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. Each week on the Bridge Builder Show, we bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting our public life. We also answer your questions in our mailbag segment, and you can always email those to us at show at mncatholic.org, again, show at mncatholic.org, or contact us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can start laying the bricks that will build the bridge between faith and public life. On today's episodes, we're talking about racism, the church's response, and what can be done from a public policy perspective to promote Racial equity. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about public partisan statements being made by priests and religious sisters. And finally, stick around for the bricklayer segment, where you can learn how you can get to know your candidates who are running for state Senate and state House representative. We're blessed to be joined on the line by Dr. Jacqueline Rivers. She is director of the Seymour Institute for Black Church and Policy Studies. She earned her doctorate in African American Studies and Sociology from Harvard University, where she is also a doctoral fellow in the multidisciplinary program in Inequality and Social Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Dr. Rivers is an important voice in producing some great content for Christians and all people of goodwill to consider on questions ranging from religious freedom to marriage and the family, and now especially questions of race, racial inequality, and how the Church can respond. Dr. Rivers, thanks for joining the Bridge Builder program today.
2: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: We here are obviously at the epicenter of the aftermath of what happened when George Floyd was killed in late May. Share with us, if you would, just to start our conversation, some general observations about what has transpired in our nation, in our world since then, with regard to questions about race and culture and and, and equity and inclusion.
2: Well, the very tragic incident with George Floyd, really, as everyone is well aware, uh coming in the middle of a pandemic, precipitated an outpouring of outrage against uh, police violence against black men. And unfortunately, it has not been sufficient to stem the deaths of black men. Police continue to, in very questionable circumstances, uh, take the lives of young black men. And it, But the outrage has been even international, as people have stood in solidarity with African Americans, or have stood up to uh, complain about police violence that they themselves have faced. So it has really been a very important turning point, the death of George Floyd.
0: When we talk about police violence against African-American men especially, that's one manifestation of racism in our culture and our society. Where are other instances where you see racism persist? We talk a lot about racism, but I think people are looking for examples so they can help identify it and combat it and uproot it where it's needed.
2: So I think it's important for us to grapple with the fact that racism is multifaceted. So I think in a lot of people's minds, a racist is the old-fashioned, you know, I hate black people, or um, a neo-Nazi with a shaved head uh, carrying a flag with a swastika and threatening the lives of black people. But that's not necessarily the only form of racism. Let me just say quickly two other things we should look for. There have been studies that show that if... um, Researchers send out resumes with names that sound black. They're less likely to get a callback than the identical resume if the name on the resume sounds white. That's racism. Much more subtle, harder to see. But beyond that, there's also the racism that's built into our institutions and into our social structures, and that is even more difficult for us uh, living our day-to-day lives to recognize
0: what are the best tools and resources that Christians and the Church can bring to fighting racism? Are there particular aspects of the Christian tradition that you think uh, are important for us to be speaking into in, in this challenging time?
2: Well, you know, before I start talking about that, I do want to just have a little disclaimer. My, my daughter tells me that I am the bad news prophet. She tells me that my favorite book in the Bible is the book of Job. but. I also like the Book of Revelations, you know, all of that fire and brimstone. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. But I—so I, I, I don't want people to come into this uh, consumed with guilt or—but recognizing that we as Christians really have power, that we have power to help change the world. And so the first and most important tool we have is prayer. We need to be very prayerful about this, because when we are battling evil, whatever form it takes, and certainly in the form of racism, white supremacy, it is a spiritual battle. So we need to approach it prayerfully. The second most important thing I think is that we should do is to really educate ourselves. There is an excellent book, Divided by Faith, uh, by Michael Emerson and Chris Smith. I really recommend it to your readers because it talks about how invisible the issues that uh, our black Christian brothers and sisters face are to many white Christians. And this, I think, is so important. But it's not just about sharing their experiencing, walking with them. There is a lot of research that can be done, a lot of reading that ought to be done before we get into the personal relationship. And I'd be glad to talk more about some of that.
0: You're highlighting the importance of accompaniment and encounter and research and getting to know some of the challenges that are faced by black Christians in this country. If someone were to ask you, what is it like to be an African-American, an African-American Christian in our society right now? What are the first, what's the first thing that comes to mind in terms of how you would respond to that question?
2: I think it's extremely painful. I think it is extremely painful to see, especially in the middle of a pandemic, the disadvantages that black people are up against, not just police violence. But in a pandemic, it's really clear that we're disadvantaged in terms of the jobs that we are in. You have to have a fairly middle class job to be able to work from home. But if you are on the front lines as an essential worker, you have to be in a position where you're exposing yourself in the middle of a pandemic on a daily basis. You have to be on public transportation. And Black people suffer from those limitations far more so than do other racial or ethnic groups.
0: There's a lot of talk about the term systemic racism, and you've mentioned that briefly. But let's dive into that a little bit and and help people get their heads around that a little bit more and what that looks like. Some have even said it's a conspiracy theory and a myth, and people, like you said, can get their head around sort of the old-style racist Southerner uh, caricature that – you know, has personal bigotry, but what what does systemic racism look like today? You mentioned the the employment application issue, and we supported a bill called Ban the Box here, where if someone has a criminal record, for example, you can't just automatically, uh, you can't even ask about it on the first employment uh, application so that people aren't disadvantaged because they have a criminal record. But what is systemic racism? How would you define it, and what does it look like today? Let's flesh that out a little bit, Dr. Rivers. (laughs)
2: So I'm glad you asked about that. I'd like to pick up on your uh, the bill, Ban the Box. Mm-hmm. That's an excellent bill, but research has also shown that if you—and this is the work of Deva Pager, a brilliant sociologist— if you were to actually send, again, equal resumes from—so uh, black men, white men— and in the case of the black man, you report no criminal record. And in the case of the white man, you report a criminal record on that resume. The white man is more likely to get a call back than the black man. That's systemic racism. Okay?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That's something that. The individual who is actually enacting that may not recognize any racist motivations, but the fact that when you look at large numbers of people, that's a trend, that's systemic racism. But it's also built into our institutions and our laws. So a young black kid has a much much, much lower chance of actually having a decent education than a newborn. So if you look at two newborn babies, one black, one white, the black child has a much lower chance of having access to a good education than the white child by virtue of being born more likely in an inner city neighborhood and being subjected to inner city schools, which are high poverty, low performing, usually majority minority schools. That's systemic racism. That's beyond the control of the child. Nothing the child did precipitated that disadvantage. But in addition to the fact that the way our society is structured now, because you might say, well, that's just a coincidence, you know, that's beyond the control of anyone. But there actually were laws that were enacted that were, and I'm not talking about slavery, much more recently laws that were enacted that disadvantaged black people. One example is the New Deal. The way the New Deal was written, blacks were excluded from unemployment insurance and social security deliberately by omitting the two industries that they were most often employed in, that is as domestic workers and as farm laborers. That has a long-term impact because whereas the measures of the New Deal helped the white middle class get founded, it helped white people make that leap into the middle class, it disadvantaged black people. And wealth accumulates over time, sort of like compound interest. And so it goes on from generation to generation. And so blacks are disadvantaged, not just in the 30s when the New Deal was uh, being enacted, but it has ramifications even to today.
0: You could talk about redlining in uh, residential housing and other exactly. such uh, programs like that as well. Exactly. Uh, Dr. Rivers, are all uh, instances of disparate impact or disparate outcomes between races the result of systemic racism?
2: So William Julius Wilson, who is leading sociologist, points to what he calls an interaction of structure and culture. And so he's saying, if you put people in these extremely disadvantaged situations... Very often there will be cultural shifts, which then often exacerbate the problem. Let me give you an example of a young man who our church has worked with. I'll call him Jamal. And he was born into a family where his mother used drugs. His father, while stealing a car, was shot in the head and killed when he was just a baby. He's growing up in a poor and violent neighborhood. Jamal has so many strikes against him right there, some of which are not just about the structure, but now about the culture that has grown out of the structure, the fact that the mother is using drugs, the fact that the father was stealing a car. The good news is that through the Ella Baker House, which, were, which is a community center that our church developed, Jamal's life really went in a different direction. Just recently, my husband and I ran into him. He's now in his 30s. He's healthy. He was driving his own car, and he was in tears just remembering the help that he had received, sneakers when he needed them, a different view of life. And he said, in my 30s, I'm glad just to be alive. I'm glad to be alive. So it's a powerful testimony of how we as Christians can make a difference by getting involved in the lives of young people who are at risk. But it also is a tragic statement that this young man in his 30s is celebrating the fact that he's alive.
0: Dr. Rivers, with regard to systemic racism, I've had, uh, it seems, at least a lot of uh, success in getting helping people understand it better by talking about things that uh, are more inclined to be embraced by conservatives, for example, such as uh, thinking about systemic racism as Planned Parenthood, putting clinics in black neighborhoods, for example, or denying children of color the opportunity for school choice and protecting white education bureaucrats. Is that too clever by half, or do you think that's an effective strategy to help people better understand the reality of systemic racism?
2: Well, I think that's complicated because because I, I think if you look at something like uh, vouchers, for example, the question is how do you ever scale that up to reach all of the children who need it? So here in Boston, you're looking at 54,000 students, most of whom are low income, 18,000 of whom are black, even more are Hispanic. How do you give enough vouchers to serve all of those children? So I'm, I, I'm concerned that in promoting something like that, we're not helping people see the failures of the system, but we're reinforcing their faith in solutions that actually don't have the power, to, the statistical power that we would need the numeric power that we would need to address the problem
0: Many Christians right now are trying to identify ways in which they can express solidarity with their African-American brothers and sisters, but are nervous about things like Black Lives Matter, especially as an organization, because of its institutional positions on a whole host of questions, some of which you've spoken about in in your work with the Seymour Institute. What are some practical ways that white Christians can show solidarity with their African-American brothers and sisters?
1: You know, I want
2: to, before we... I think it's really important. One of the things that I've heard from a lot of African Americans is that they are tired of educating white people. So I think the most important first step after prayer is to educate for white people to educate themselves and to understand the problem before reaching out. Then I think standing with people on issues of policy is really important. So the measures that are being considered to limit police use of force, looking at the question of qualified immunity, or re-examining our laws. Why is it that in so many cases where it is evident that police officers used force inappropriately, they are acquitted if it even gets to trial? What is it about our laws that need to be changed? I think working on some of those issues, that's an excellent way to stand in solidarity. And the other thing that I would suggest is at the level of uh, institutions, white churches reaching out to black churches in black neighborhoods and really trying to understand in a supportive way what issues they're dealing with and how they can uh, support them in dealing with those issues, those are some of the things that I think we can do as Christians.
0: Racial tensions certainly aren't limited to whites and African-Americans. There's tensions across racial divides, African-Americans and Hispanics, um, Asians and African-Americans. There's all sorts of these issues going on. How can the Church generally be an agent of racial reconciliation in our culture?
2: I think that that is a very challenging question. And again, I say that we need to start with prayer. I think in many cases— dealing with the tension between blacks and whites is a real point of departure to begin to address the other racial tensions that exist. Looking carefully at our laws and presuppositions for how they impact different racial and ethnic groups is also another way in which to begin to uh, address the question of the tensions that exist not just between blacks and whites but across different racial and ethnic groups. and. Residential segregation is one of the most difficult problems to solve, because whites tend to not want to live around other races, but in particular, not around blacks. And Hispanics and Asians have also been shown through research to not want to live around blacks. How can we begin to address that problem? How can we change our attitudes towards just living next door to someone and not moving away when a critical mass of black people move into a neighborhood? These are some of the questions that I think we as Christians can grapple with.
0: You've said a li- um, something about prayer multiple times, and I want to dive into that a little bit before we talk more about policy and, and the spiritual yeah. component of this fight. Are there specific prayers—and you, and you come from, a, if I'm correct, about this Pentecostal tradition—are there specific yeah. prayers that you identify with in this in battle? Or say a little bit more about the spiritual dimension of this from your this whole issue from your perspective.
2: So, you know, we Pentecostals, we don't really use prayers that are written in advance, but I would really recommend Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 18, where Paul is talking about the battle as a spiritual battle, Mm -hmm. that we wrestle not with flesh and blood. Praying the Scriptures, I think, is a very powerful way to approach this. So that's one prayer that I would recommend. Um, In Ephesians, in the first chapter, Paul prays about our unity and about understanding God, knowing Him more deeply. That's another powerful prayer. And in many places throughout the scriptures, uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about us as the body of Christ, how we are brothers and sisters. Another powerful way to pray, to pray for the unity of the church and to pray for the unity of us, of the church across racial and ethnic
0: divides. Well, that's inspiring and powerful, and certainly uh, Catholics have that tradition of praying the scriptures with Lexio Divina, and, and Dr. Rivers, is, you've given us a, an important passage on which to meditate with regard to this whole issue of racism and racial reconciliation, so thank you for that. We're not fighting uh, people, we're fighting powers and principalities.
2: Yes, yeah. exactly.
0: Well, I want to talk a little bit about this issue of policing. And you've got a conference coming up, it looks like, that you'll be doing at Baylor. Um, And here in the Twin Cities, we've been talking about defunding the police. And in Minneapolis, it seems, after an explosion of crime... In the last couple of months, now the the pendulum has swung the other way, and now we're talking about radically expanding the police force. Yet in Saint Paul, our sister city, um, they are not; they are cutting the police uh, force. It seems. Uh, you promote community policing. What is that, and why is that perhaps an alternative here to some of these proposals that we've been hearing about?
2: Well, I think it's just so important for the police to be well trained and to really know the people. In whose neighborhoods they work. So that they, it is easy when you're a policeman and you're always called, or a police officer, whether a policeman or a policewoman, when you are always called into a situation of crime to see people at their worst. But if you're doing community policing and to then develop, uh, to, to dehumanize the people with, among whom you work so that you begin to see them as animals, and then it becomes easier. Not never justifiable, always reprehensible, but easier to commit the kind of crime against uh, unarmed black men that we're talking about in the case of George Floyd. But if you're walking the beat, if you are getting to know the merchants and people just as they are on their way doing their daily business, you have a different view of the neighborhood that you work in. You you build relationships you build bonds and it is much less likely that you will commit the kind of violence that we're uh, talking about in the case of george floyd that is what's powerful about community policing now is it true that there are some uh, functions of policing that might be better carried out by mental health workers for example that may well be true however it's also in my experience here in boston Mental health services are so desperately needed that I am not sure what we would accomplish by trying to transfer the responsibility for responding to a mental health crisis from the police to the mental health department because it is so inadequate as it stands. If we're really talking about solving these problems, we have to think very carefully and not just have knee-jerk reactions.
0: Dr. Rivers, I want to give you the opportunity to just add anything you'd like to share in our remaining time uh, to our listeners. What messages, what policy prescriptions in particular? You talked about the importance of engaging and showing solidarity at the level of public policy. And Catholic, our Catholic listeners can do that through the Minnesota Catholic Conference's Catholic Advocacy Network, which they can join at mncatholic.org. But what message would you like to leave us with? Perhaps maybe a word of inspiration, since your daughter says you like the Book of Job, but um, what what can you leave us with uh, today to think about and chew on?
2: I, I'd like to just go back quickly to uh, this point about uh, the police. I think that we need to really focus on holding our police responsible and making sure that they're well-trained, and that there is a mechanism that prohibits policemen, police officers who are fired for cause in one jurisdiction from getting work in another jurisdiction. We need to monitor more carefully the quality of our policemen. And a word of inspiration, Catholics and Christians... All of us who love Jesus have to remember the charge he leaves us with, that whatever we do, for the least of these, our brothers and sisters, we are doing for Jesus.
0: Dr. Rivers, thank you. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work with the Seymour Institute?
2: Please go to the SeymourInstitute.com, all one word, S-E-Y-M-O-U-R, SeymourInstitute.com, to learn more about our programs.
0: Dr. Jacqueline Rivers, thanks so much for joining the Bridge Builder podcast and sharing your inspiring and challenging message with our listeners today. Thanks so much and God bless you.
2: Thank you and God bless you. It was my pleasure.
0: We'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to delve into our mailbag. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag?
1: So This week, we've got a question about what can priests and religious say with regard to the election. It came up because there's been a number of priests and religious sisters that took very public partisan stances at both the Republican and the Democratic National Conventions. And then there was this very viral video from a priest in our neighboring Wisconsin declaring that you can't be a Catholic and a Democrat. And it just really has a lot of people asking whether clergy and religious should be taking partisan stances. Simultaneously, it has other people on both sides of the aisle really praising them for their boldness. So, Jason, what, what can our religious leaders be saying
0: here? Well, there's certainly a temptation for clergy and religious right now to jump into the fray because of a passion for a certain issue or a cause or a belief that one or the other political party or candidate is going to make things better or perhaps make things worse, and this is certainly understandable. But it's important to remember that the Church speaks at the level of of principle and never partisanship. And the Church needs to rise above that to be able to speak to all people, to form consciences, and then rely on them to apply those principles in the concrete realities of specific elections. Is it theoretically possible for a bishop or the Church to endorse or oppose a candidate? It certainly is, but that's not where we're at today. And so without the express permission of one's bishop or religious superior, priests and religious should not be taking partisan stances when it comes to candidate elections. Again, the Church needs to be speaking at the level of principle and forming consciences, and it's up to laypersons to take those principles and apply them in the concrete realities of a candidate election. In some instances, Catholics of goodwill are gonna come to opposite conclusions, and we certainly are hearing from people who believe very strongly about both the presidential election and then our state races here in Minnesota as well. So it's again, it's important, especially for the clergy, to stand above that partisanship, to be able to speak to all people with the good news of the gospel, focus first on the reality that the ultimate victory has been won, that we have a savior. It's not us, and it's not the politicians. And the trust that God's grace works in ways sometimes that we don't understand, but ultimately we have to remember our roles and responsibilities and not create unnecessary stumbling blocks for people because we care about the outcomes or potential outcomes of a candidate election.
1: Great. Thanks, Jason. And what do we have in this week's bricklayer segment that might actually help people further discern before they cast their vote?
0: Well, we talked a little bit a moment ago about forming our conscience, and then it's up to the lay per- person in the pew to for- inform the vote. So we form our conscience, and then we inform our vote. One way to do that is to get to know who your state house candidates are and state senate candidates are often people have no idea who they are they go to that voting booth on november 3rd and they know a lot about the presidential candidates maybe the congressional candidates but oftentimes they don't know who their state candidates are and they're voting either just on a party ticket or a party platform when the issues are a little bit more compelling and complicated than that so we're inviting parishes to host a parish candidate forum invite your state house candidates and state senate candidates to come to face questions about issues of concern to Catholics, and then take the time to ask your own questions and hear what candidates have to say about a whole host of compelling issues. A lot of the important decisions that are made in government are made at the state and local level. If we don't know who's representing us, if we don't know where they stand, how can we make an informed choice of the ballot box? And how can we possibly believe that they're gonna make informed decisions when they go into office? So a great opportunity is our Minnesota Catholic Conference uh, candidate forums. Maybe you're a member of your parish council of Catholic women, the Knights of Columbus, your parish respect life group, your social justice committee, really, no matter your role, this is an opportunity that anyone in the parish can step up and lead with your pastor's permission at our website, mncatholic.org. We've created an easy how to guide for planning, promoting, and hosting a candidate town hall either in person or online, and we encourage any parishioner to speak with their pastor this weekend and let them know there's still time to host a candidate town hall. For complete details, visit us at mncatholic.org slash town hall. Again, mncatholic.org slash town hall. That's all the time we have for today. But listeners, remember, you can be part of our mailbag segment. Just send your questions or comments to show at mncatholic.org. Again, show at mncatholic.org. Catch up on any past episodes online of The Bridge Builder at our website, mncatholic.org slash podcast, or search for The Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, and for Kit Cross, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a blessed day.